I am thankful for godly men who have gone before me, and uh, even as we look at 1 Samuel 15 this morning, most of what I have to share with you is not uh, the work of my own, so I am thankful for other godly men who help us in our studies and in the proclamation of God's Word. Why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're continuing our study. It's one of those chapters that you often reference but not for encouragement. This is rather a lesson from which you can learn much about the consequences of disobedience. Interesting, even as the Lord sovereignly orchestrated our theme this morning and Dylan went through, talking about obedience and love and how they go hand in hand. And we'll see the lack of both in Saul's life even this morning. Chapter 15 is about the final fall of the man Saul and his divine rejection as king of Israel. Saul has been the primary character through this historical narrative since chapter 9, having been first appointed king, or the first to be appointed king of Israel. Remember also the other main character in this narrative, that being the prophet Samuel. He was also a priest and a judge previously uh, to anointing King Saul. He was the last of the numerous judges documented In the previous book, uh, just prior to 1 Samuel, uh, the book of Judges, in the chronological history of the nation Israel, the book of Judges flows right into the book of Samuel, and historically it was one book, not necessarily 1 and 2 Samuel. Samuel, as the last judge, is also a prophet and a priest, and it fell to him to anoint the first king of Israel, again, that is Saul. Three chapters have focused on Saul as king, starting back in chapters 13, 14, and now here into 15, and just what he has accomplished and doing as a king. Keep in mind that Saul's reign as king is not coming to an end in our study this morning, but his reign will continue through the end of 1 Samuel, which has 31 chapters. But his rejection as king is finalized here in chapter 15. You see in this chapter that Saul's disobedient rebellion, his refusal to trust God and thereby manifest his trust in the living God by obedience, finalizes his rejection as king. The tragedy of Saul's life seems to be that he just did not learn from failure. And in chapter 15, we come and find failure added to failure. The real problem with Saul seems to be that he had no true living relationship with the God of Israel, even as Dylan was talking this morning. No love for God, no obedience to Him. The real, uh, he never came into submission to the God of Israel. He goes through the form as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He comes from a notable family, you recall, in our previous studies. He was recognized, uh, their family recognized for their valor. But Saul seems to always be on the fringe, not quite fully participating in that true living and abiding relationship with God. He's around and kind of on the periphery of what God is doing. And of course, God is using him to accomplish his divine purposes for sure. But Saul never seems to have that true relationship with the living God. Saul's previous disobedience back in chapter 13 has already prompted the announcement the end of his one-man dynasty. If you turn back and look at verses 13 and following, Samuel said to him, again, the Lord's already revealing that Saul's family line on the throne will not endure. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. A good reminder even from Dylan this morning in his opening, uh, tying love and obedience uh, in the same thought. And here Saul, in his previous disobedience, has lost opportunity to continue on. In chapter 13, we can give Saul a little bit of grace. Uh, He was being confronted with the Philistine army. It was of overwhelming size. It was an army that was well-equipped, 
But within the army of Israel, you could count their swords and spears on two men, Saul and his son Jonathan. The army of Israel, they were frightened, they were unraveling, they were hiding in the caves and holes in the ground, wherever they could find a hiding place. And in chapter 13, Saul's disobedience is not necessarily excusable, but it is understandable as you look at it from a human perspective uh, that, boy, he really was in the face of overwhelming pressure. But it is still disobedience, and God does not excuse him for it. So when you come to chapter 15, you see that Saul is disobedient once again. In just the opposite kind of circumstances, though, uh, we closed out chapter 14 reading about how Saul had taken the kingdom over in Israel. He fought against his enemies in verse 47. On every side, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Zobah, on down through, conquering the Philistines throughout his kingship. And he's being very successful. And even in chapter 15, he has met with much success. He has overwhelming victories, crushing his enemies. He is triumphant from the beginning. And yet he manifests his true character. And what is that? A distrust in God and disobedience toward God in this situation as well. Look how chapter 15 begins. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Just a reminder to Saul of who Samuel is as God's instrument in his life. Samuel is one who speaks the very words of God to Saul. He came as God's messenger to anoint Saul. He gave him the word from the beginning, from the Lord regarding his appointment as king. And this is another reminder that Saul is to be obedient. He is to obey the words of God. And note what it says in verse 1. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. You know, you grab your kid's face when they were young, you know, and you look them in the eyes. Listen to me. That's almost what Samuel is doing to Saul. You're a king because God sent me to anoint you. Now, listen, pay attention to what God has to say. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Israel. So we have to go back a little bit in history. But Saul's assignment is to be God's instrument of judgment on the Amalekites. And the basis for judgment goes back almost 400 years or more. Uh, to the exodus from Egypt, specifically in Exodus chapter 17. And on that occasion, the Amalekites opposed and fought against Israel. They wouldn't allow them to pass through their land on their way to the promised land. And uh, you come back to Exodus chapter 17, actually. I want you to see this. Verses 8 and following, Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. And tomorrow I'll station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So you can picture Moses standing up there with his staff. This is a familiar story to us, one that is shared often in our Sunday schools. Joshua did as Moses told him in verse 10 and fought against Amalek and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Can you imagine trying to... I, Worked a job once where you're working over your head all the time. That's tough, uh, let alone standing there all day long without lowering your arms. Verse 12, Moses' hands were heavy. They took a stone, sat him down on it. Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Well, thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So all day long, Joshua fighting against the Amalekites and overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Although Israel is victorious, Amalek and his people here, just remember they opposed Israel. They stood against God's people. And for this, they are guilty. Note verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Write it down, let's not forget that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, named it, The Lord is my banner, and he said, The Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. 400 years has passed, and God is going to fulfill his word. Just note that Moses' response 
to this victory. He builds an altar, and he names it, The Lord is my banner. He gives all the glory, all the honor to God and builds an altar and there declares that the victory is the Lord's, the honor is God's. The annihilation of the Amalekites is coming here in 1 Samuel 15, and it's going to take about 400 years or so for it to be fully uh, fulfilled. As you saw at the end of verse 16, there's war from generation to generation. It's going to take some time. The Amalekites uh, have continued their opposition to Israel. We'll see that as we work our way back to 1 Samuel. Stop in the book of Judges, chapter 3. Just before the book of 1 Samuel, we're in the time of Othniel, the first judge in Israel, and we find the sons of Amalek opposing Israel once again in chapter 3, verses 11 and following, after Othniel had a chance to uh, subdue some enemies there in verses 9 and 10. Then the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And then verse 12, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the next judge, the king of, not the next judge, the king of Moab actually, to stand against Israel in judgment uh, because they had done the evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, the king of Moab, pulling in the Amalekites again to fight. And he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18 years of subjugation at the hands of three different allies, one of them being the Amalekites. Continue over to chapter 6, verse 33. We see the Amalekites once again being allied with the Midianites. In verse 13, then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the sons of the east, assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel, that is actually Megiddo, where Armageddon will take place. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, he blew a trumpet, men were gathered, and they come to stand against the Amalekites, the Midianites, who were once again standing against God as they stand against God's people. Over in chapter 7. In verse 12, we see them once again. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east lying in the valleys, numerous as locusts. Uh, their armor, their animals, their camels, their weapons of war without number. Again, the Amalekites, they started their opposition against Israel at the Exodus, and over these generations they have continued that opposition. And we need to remember that God said He was going to annihilate the Amalekites. And he was going to destroy them completely. And so we come back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Every single human, every single animal, all that has the breath of life in them. To utterly destroy many of your translations. If you have an ESV, you might see this as uh, the devoted to destruction. The, it's, it's under the ban. When something was placed under the ban, it was set apart for destruction before God. Uh, God is saying, you must devote it to destruction. Uh, it belongs to me, and as a sovereign ruler, I have determined that judgment must fall. It is devoted to destruction, under the ban. Likewise, the Amalekites, they are to come under the judgment of God, and that means there will be no mercy here. All men, all women, old and young, children, defenseless infants, yes, and even animals, all are going to be wiped out. Those are Saul's instructions from the Lord. It is an awesome assignment when God's time of judgment comes. And you can no longer find mercy. Mercy has run out for the Amalekites. I want you to just jot down Revelation chapter 14. I want you to recall to mind that the day is coming when mercy will run out for all the nations that remain on the earth at the end of the great tribulation. Those who rebel against God. A day in which they will have the full strength of God's anger. His undiluted wrath. What do we read in Revelation chapter 
14 verses 9 and following, another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, on his right hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up until they've made penance for their sin. It doesn't say that if you're following along. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. There is no mercy in God's final wrath. His cup of anger is undiluted with mercy. Back in Leviticus, I want you to just keep in mind the placing under the ban or those things devoted to destruction. This was something that was common uh, even and through this time as Moses had written the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Samuel, uh, Saul ought to have known, Saul ought to have known even these first five books. And in Leviticus, the last chapter, 27, and verses 28 and 29, we're told, Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has, a man or animal, or of the fields of his own property, shall not be sold or redeemed. There's no redeeming it. There's no uh, taking it back. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. No one who may have been set apart among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. So we see very clearly in God's Word that there is no escape when something is put under the ban, when it's devoted to destruction. You can't ransom it. You can't pay a redemption price. It is doomed to destruction. As we come back to 1 Samuel 15, we find that the day of grace and mercy has passed for the Amalekites. Again, 400 years have passed under that general common grace of God, and they have manifested their relentless character in opposing God by opposing the people of God. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 4 and following brings us to Saul's actual disobedient actions and sets us up to see this as Saul gathers the armies of Israel. The numbers here mentioned in verse 4, then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Verse 5, Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from amongst the Amalekites. The Kenites, these are a different people than the Amalekites. And God spares them through Saul because they showed kindness to Israel when they left Egypt. Uh, who are the Kenites? Well, remember Exodus chapter 18 when Jethro, the father-in-law, of Moses, showed kindness to Israel, came and visited the camp of Israel. Jethro was a Kenite, just as God remembers his promise to destroy Israel's enemies. 400 years is not too long for God to remember those who showed kindness to Israel and thereby to Israel's God. We come to verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they destroyed. Remember God's instruction up in verse 3, Go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has, do not spare him or anything that is there, man, woman, child, ox, animal. Saul has defeated the Amalekites, and we need to recognize that it is fully within his power at this point to fully obey, do exactly what God has said to do. But instead, no love for God is found in his heart, and he decides to obey, disobey. He captures the king Agag, keeps him alive. Saul and the people, it's noted there at the beginning of verse 9, very clearly for us, that Saul and the people both 
are guilty. They are guilty of taking the people, taking the best of the spoil, actually, and they do not utterly destroy them, and thus you have the disobedience. But what does God think of Saul and his leadership and his actions? We come to verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. This phrase that God regrets that he made Saul king has been a point of discussion and contention throughout the centuries. You might even wonder why or how could God have regret A few years ago there was, and maybe even likely continues today, a discussion in theology called open theism or open theology. I think there was even a prominent teacher here in the Twin Cities years ago. And the claim is that God doesn't know the future exactly. He's got a general idea what's going to happen, but he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. And the critics of God's absolute sovereignty and omniscience, they come to a passage like this and they falsely claim that God didn't know exactly what Saul would do. And, well, here you have God. He's going to have to somehow resolve his mistaken choice on account for Saul's disobedience. Obviously, that's not true. God did not change his infinite mind. He knows and has planned out every detail of history from beginning to end. He is simply expressing his grief over Saul's sin in a way that helps you and I in our finite minds to understand from our limited perspective to get just a glimpse into the infinite sovereignty of our Lord. Yes, God is going to make a change. He's going to, from our perspective, shift directions. But didn't God plan this all, even in his sovereign uh, orchestrated uh, plans for the nation of Israel, of course? He had this planned out. And we read further even if you just stay in the same chapter, 1 Samuel 15, jump down to verse 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So this word regret, this phrase that God regretted making Saul king is not that God is changing his mind. Uh, God says that in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. But even as Samuel is digesting and understanding who God is, and he comes down and Samuel is the one speaking in verse 29, he understands that clearly to mean that God has not necessarily changed his mind. There is going to be a change in Israel's kingship, but God's infinite plan already included Saul's rebellion. Remember also Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, "'For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed.'" God did not promise a permanent line for Saul and his sons as kings. Uh, There was a conditional opportunity, if you will, uh, humanly speaking, for Saul, as we saw in in, uh, chapter 13. But that was taken away. He lost that opportunity. To the nation of Israel, of course, in Malachi 3.6, God has made an irrevocable commitment. His plan is clearly set set forth. But again, Uh, that is conditioned only on God's promises. The kingship of Saul uh, was conditional. Uh, Obey me and I will establish you. But Saul failed in his disobedience. Recall James chapter 1 verse 17 also. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, he never changes. There is no variation. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. God does not change. There's no shadow caused by his turning. There's not a shifting shadow. He doesn't change. He doesn't turn. There's only one plan with God. He is the God who does not change. So we continue again in 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. I regret that I have made Saul king. Samuel understands the unchanging God is speaking. Clearly takes this to mean that Saul's opportunities are over. He will be replaced, and that is exactly what is going to happen by the time we get to chapter 16 and verse 1. So here we see something about Samuel's godly character. When was the last time that you and I spent a whole night in prayer? His distress, his crying out, it's not even for one of his own wayward children. This is for Saul, who's already displayed disobedience. 
but he stays up all night mourning for the impact on the nation. Again, we look at verse 11. Samuel is distressed. He cried out to the Lord all night. He's a godly man. He realizes the tragedy of Saul's rejection, even though Saul himself doesn't recognize it. All the way through chapter 15, Saul is oblivious to the tragedy that has overtaken him. But Samuel knows. He spends all night in prayer because this is a matter that affects the people of God. So he goes before the Lord to cry out all night for Israel. Also note that this is the first thing Samuel does. He intercedes and prays. Well, I got nothing else to do. I guess I better pray. It's our last resort usually, isn't it? Should be our first resort to go to him to cry out all night if necessary in prayer. Of course, night turns into another day. God's mercies are new every morning. Samuel has business in verse 12. It's going to be unpleasant, but he must attend to it. So Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Saul has had a great victory. And the first thing he does, builds a monument to himself. For his honor, for his glory. Remember when we were in the Exodus following Moses and Joshua's defeat of and the victory over the Amalekites initially? What did Moses do? He built an altar to the Lord and he named it, The Lord is my banner. He gave all the honor and all the glory to the Lord. Not so much with Saul. Steeped in his pride, in his self-confidence, building a monument for himself. He has no sense that he has failed to honor the Lord's clear commands to the end, all the way through. Instead, he's caught up in his own victory. I've crushed my enemies. Look how good we are. Started back in chapter 14, even as we looked at previously. I guess the best thing to do is to build me a well-deserved monument. Let's go. You can almost just, and, and we shake our heads. You can easily imagine the disappointment rolling through Samuel's mind as somebody comes up to him and says, yeah, we saw Saul. He's built himself a monument, but he's going on to Gilgal. You can almost imagine Samuel, well, he is God's rejected king. It's no wonder God rejected him. Shouldn't be surprised. Of course, the rejected man would build a monument to himself instead of God. Come to verse 13, Samuel catches up to Saul on his way to Gilgal. Not quite to Gilgal. And Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the commandment of the Lord. Greetings. Here's Samuel again. He's catching up to Saul on his way to Gilgal. And the, the spiritually dense Saul is on full display. He is so happy to see Samuel. He didn't even stop to think. You know, the Lord said every single thing is under the ban and must be destroyed. He has the audacity to come and meet Saul, meet Samuel, sorry, and say, Blessed of the Lord, I've carried out the commandment of the Lord. Of course, Samuel's response should be well known to us all. In verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? Again, verse 3, it was very clear. Samuel, figuratively grabbing Saul's face. Now listen to the word of the Lord. Listen to what I have to tell you. Everything, basically with the breath of life in it, is to be wiped out. No surviving animals from the Amalekites. Saul comes down saying, I've carried out the command of the Lord. Samuel, oh really, have you? What's this uh, bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? There weren't to be any sheep. There weren't to be any oxen. How can you tell me you've obeyed the commandment of the Lord? What is this that I hear? And note as we carry on in verses 15 and following, just the pattern of Saul's sin. Verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. Observe carefully where Paul, Saul puts himself. They spared some of the animals. The people spared the best of the animals. We have destroyed the rest. They did this. 
But I am of that other group. We put all the rest that was under the ban and devoted them to destruction, carried out the Lord's command. Aren't we good? Sin always works that way. I want to challenge you and myself even this morning to consider how we roll sin around in our hearts and minds. Saul knows he has done the wrong thing, and he's just trying to cover it. This is what the people did. He tries to put it in the best light. They had good intentions because they intend to make a sacrifice, but what does he say? To your God. Not to the Lord our God. Don't you want your God to be honored, Samuel? They kept the best so they could honor the Lord with a sacrifice. But, you know, I didn't do that. I destroyed the rest. If we're honest, you and I do the same thing. We try to put everything in the best light. We cover for ourselves. They brought them. The people spared them, but the rest we've destroyed. We're going to make a sacrifice. Samuel interrupts Saul before he can say any more. Beginning in verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Samuel was up all night praying. The Lord must have told him the full situation. Nothing hidden from his knowledge here. There is no need to hear from Saul. Just stop talking. Put the shovel down. Samuel already knew the whole story when he went out to meet Saul. In verse 16, and Saul said to Samuel, speak. So Samuel says, it is, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? Remember Saul? He was not exactly embracing his kingship, was he? Being the smallest of the tribes of Israel, Benjamin. And the people were eager to anoint him as king, but they couldn't find him. Where was he? I don't know, I'm going to hide behind the baggage here. How quickly our opinion changes of ourselves. Yeah, I'm good, this is great. From changing from a guy hiding amongst the baggage. How quickly our pride, our covering of our own sin, changes our thoughts. Here's Saul, not hiding among the baggage. Build a monument to himself. Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul, in his prideful delusion, thinks he can argue for and defend his case. I've got a reason. Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. The squishy mind begins to rationalize. Well, maybe. Hold on a second. Is it obedience or is it disobedience? But don't be fooled. Partial obedience is disobedience. How can you say, I've obeyed the command of the Lord when the command was to destroy every single person? And yet in the same breath, Saul is saying, I've brought back alive the king of the Amalekites. We do the same thing. I've obeyed the Lord. I've done what His Word says. And then we go off and try and justify what we know was partial obedience. Verse 21, the people took some of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Saul clearly knows that both the people and the animals were devoted to destruction. He knows that all of it was under the ban. Saul was raised as a Hebrew in the tribe of Benjamin. He would have been familiar with even Leviticus that we wrote, read earlier and knew what was required of those things placed under the ban. But he fails to lead the people into obedience because he himself, he's unwilling to obey the Lord. Saul, again, he blames the people for their own choices. Well, they did that. That's their problem in neglecting his own God-given responsibility. And he goes even further trying to justify their sin 
with their good intentions. They were going to give a sacrifice. Isn't this a good thing? You ever thought, or maybe you're even thinking about this, thinking this way about your sin this morning? We engage in such twisted gymnastic thoughts, just the same as Saul. We lower God to our own level. We portray Him as a mushy grandparent, thinking that God will be pleased if we use the very things that He's devoted to destruction and now offer them as a sacrifice. You and I, we are so readily and with ease, it's easy for us to try and justify the committing of the sin and then sanctify it. It was a good thing. Such is our brazen disobedience. God, you said destroy them, but I have a better idea. I know better than God. I'll honor you by sacrificing these animals to you. Yes, I'm going to honor you with my disobedience. And this is the twisted logic of our own sinfully grandiose imaginations. I have in my margin in one passage in the New Testament, beware the imagination. We think way too highly of ourselves. Saul, he's still blaming the people for taking the animals, yet he yields a little bit of knowledge here that he was in fact part of the whole scheme. Continues on in verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. God is more concerned with obedience than sacrifice. This becomes a plaguing problem of Israel throughout her history. They thought they could go through their religious motions, all while rebelling against God in their hearts, expecting that God would say, it's okay, simply because they're going through their religious motions. But what does the prophet Isaiah record from God in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10? Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, equating His chosen people in Israel as rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have, no, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. You'd be better off not coming with your sacrifices. Harboring sin in your heart is making a mockery of true worship. When you pursue sin and disobedience and then come before the Lord to offer sacrifice, just as Saul was more concerned with the physical action of the sacrifices than he was with obedience, so you and I so easily delude ourselves into thinking that God is pleased with our sacrifice of time or of effort. I'm here on Sunday morning, Lord. What more do you want from me? All the while sitting in our nice cushy chairs in a comfortable place, propping up sin in the idol factory that is our heart. What does Psalm 51 say? Verse 16 and 17, For you know, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would bring it. David writing here. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise as you had despised the sacrifices being brought and mentioned in Isaiah chapter 1. Who's writing this? David. At what point in his life is he writing this? He had just committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he murdered her husband, Uriah. He's a broken man. Nathan has come to him, the prophet. He's repented of his sin. And he knows what's most important. It's not going through the motions, going into the temple, offering what must be done as delineated through the uh, Old Testament, what you must offer up. It's a broken and contrite heart. It is a heart that embraces reality, the truthfulness of the sin and its ugliness before God in a violation of His holiness. Now, there is a place for God's required sacrifices, of course, in the Old Testament. But if they didn't come from a heart of submission and obedience, their works, they're repulsive to God as bloodied rags. Just don't bring them 
stop, he says. You read on in Isaiah chapter 1. Continue in verse 23 of 1 Samuel 15. For rebellion calls out the sin very plainly. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Is there any such thing as just a little divination? Playing with the Ouija board? Consulting demons? Spirits of the dead? No. It's all in. Is there just a little bit of iniquity? Is there just a little bit of idolatry? We come here this morning, we're going to worship the Lord, sing His praises, and bow before Him. And then before you leave, you're going to have to kiss a statue of Mary. The result is a service of idolatrous worship. Not one drop, just one drop of poison, it spoils the whole glass of milk. Now God says here also that rebellion, disobedience, rebellion is like the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Think of the most open acts of false worship, rebellion, divining spirits, disobedience, sin, idolatry. That is how God sees the rebellion of your heart. Just a little disobedience. It's just as bad as any of the big ones. The refusal to obey has led, Saul's, led to Saul's rejection as king. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And look how Saul answers Samuel in verse 24. Saul finally acknowledges his sin after being confronted clearly and openly by Samuel. Then Samuel said, Saul said to Samuel, difficult with that. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Everything up to this point has been lies and excuses. We know it, and now Saul knows it. Just like the people, Saul himself did not actually want to obey God's commands. Saul knew what Samuel said. He heard very clearly. He knew what God said through Samuel, and I transgressed those words. He clearly confesses. But do not confuse Saul's remorse with true repentance. He does continue on and gives a good reason and the truthful one as to why he did sin. I feared the people. I listened to their voice. God told me to do this, but God wanted me to do that. So I decided to go along with the people. The people didn't want to destroy all of the best of the animals. And Saul, he wanted the people to like him again. So, of course, he prioritized the fear of man over the fear of God. Saul is not a godly king. Yet even today, the leaders of Christ's church should take these words to heart. This lesson is as much important to me as any one of us. God tells me to do this, but the people want me to do that. What should I do? What does God's Word say? Is there really any need for a discussion? What about your wife, your friends, those closest to you? They want you to do one thing. God wants you to do another. says this, and this is what you have to do. It's very clearly laid out in Scripture. The people didn't want to destroy all the best of the animals. And Saul went along with the people. He, again, wanted the people to like him. It's very tough. Sometimes we find ourselves in these situations. I don't know whether to please God or disobey God. I don't know whether I want God to be pleased with me or my friends to be pleased with me. Is it even really a choice? There's really no choice to make. We must do what God says. Even if everyone decides to do something else, we must do what God clearly commands. <clears throat> Saul said it again here, I feared the people. I listen to their voice. He's unstable. He's mushy. He's that vacillating king in God's service. But God won't stand for it. We continue in verse 25. Saul says, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. 
Saul claims to have repented, and so now he deserves a pardon. Let's just cover this over and move on. Yet Saul is already calculating how to save face, to keep the people unsuspecting, engaging in the same sin of self-preservation, self-worship that resides in your heart and mine even today. We are susceptible to the same. Oh yeah, I've sinned, but I don't want anybody to know about it. I'm going to keep it quiet. I want people ignorant of my sin. I want to save face. Self-preservation, that's really worshiping self as opposed to worshiping God. Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel sees right through it. There's no undoing what has been done. Saul himself is done as king. He's not finished functioning as king. He will continue functioning as king for another 15 years or so, 13 to 15 years or so. But he's done. He serves in the capacity as king. He remains the king of Israel, even as the next anointed king, while yet a fugitive, will recognize Saul as king of Israel until he dies. But he is a rejected king. He's a lame duck king, if you will. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Oh, the prideful heart. When I'm confronted in my pride and I hear somebody else is better than me, I have in my imaginations made myself to be so grandiose and somebody else is better than me. And imagine the impact this might have had on Saul. Verse 29, also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. It's settled. It's done. You're finished. There's no going back. You can't feign repentance with your sorrowful remorse and expect God to say, oh, okay, it's fine. Never mind. Just kidding. There is a difference between remorse and repentance. Sorry I've been caught is remorse. Repentance? What a violation of God's holiness. I must turn and go the other way. But here again, Saul is remorseful, but not repentant. And he's done. There's no way to change the events or avoid the consequences. And sometimes even in our own sin, we get to a point, it's like, oh, boy, these consequences. I don't know if I like living with these consequences. But you can't avoid the natural consequences that God brings into your life as a consequence for your sin. Verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now and before the elders of my people and before Israel. So here Saul leaves no doubt about the motive behind his request up in verse 25. He clearly verbalizes that he doesn't want to lose face before the people. How many of us do the exact same thing? We attempt to cover our sin. We calculate how to save face, hoping to keep others ignorant of our sin, trying to maintain some position of influence. I want to be liked. Engaging in the same sin, again, I'll say it, that self-idolization resides in our hearts even today. If Samuel doesn't participate in the act of formal worship in Gilgal, where he resides as priest of God, Saul could lose face. The people would then rightly see Saul as the rejected king, but I don't want that. Let's cover this up. Again, what is Saul most concerned about? Honor me before the people. So Samuel does go to Gilgal. He is still king. Saul is still king. Again, I mentioned David earlier. He's going to honor Saul and respect Saul because he is still God's anointed king. Although the rejection has been announced, God has not yet replaced Saul formally, officially. So he must be honored as king. So Samuel does honor Saul's request as the king of Israel, still to be recognized for his God-given authority, even though it's been made clear to this king of Israel that you are rejected by God. You're going to be replaced by someone else someone better than you, and your line, your family line, will end on the throne. Verse 31, so Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord, but this is not the end of the chapter. It's not yet over. In verse 32, Samuel said, bring me 
Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Whew. No hard feelings, right? We're good. Go on my, go on my merry way, right? Uh, might have lost, but uh, you're not still upset, are you? Uh, remember, who is Samuel? He has functioned as judge over Israel for many years, as well as priest and prophet. He is not a timid little man. Verse 33, but Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among men, among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel just takes a sword, cuts Agag into pieces as an act of true worship before the Lord. It reminds me of Phineas in Numbers 25 when the Israelites were bringing in the Midianite women. And Phineas, he runs through both man and woman, both in one thrust of the spear. And then the Lord gives him a covenant of peace, that perpetual priesthood for making atonement for the sons of Israel. And here Samuel is executing God's justice, the clear command which Saul failed to obey. We come to verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul, he went up to his house at Gibeah, of Saul. So they leave Gilgal, go back to their respective homes. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For 15 years or so, 13 to 15 years or so, Saul and Samuel do not see the whites of each other's eyes ever again until the day that Saul dies. And again, we have this expression here in verse 35, Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Indicating again that Saul, he has failed the test. God is determined to replace him with a man over his, after his own heart, even as he said back in verse 14 of chapter 13. And the separation of Samuel and Saul, this pictures very readily for us the separation that exists between Saul and God because Samuel, he is God's spokesman, his representative, he's the prophet. The word of the Lord comes through Samuel, but Samuel had no more meetings with Saul until the day of Saul's death. God is done with Saul. Even though he's still God's anointed, he is to be respected as king. Saul is done. There's quite a few lessons that we can learn from this chapter. In verse 2, God keeps his word. He says, I will punish Amalek for what he did. 400 years have passed, but that doesn't matter. God keeps His Word. His promised judgment will come. What does 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-10 through 10 say? Uh, this is warning about those who are going to come in the last days, mocking and saying, where's the promise of His coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. All this talk about coming judgment. Where are the blessings? You guys have been saying the same thing for 2,000 years and it hasn't happened yet. Get over it. It's not going to happen. No, God keeps His Word. Second, God's holiness requires sin to be punished. In verse 3, no one anywhere who has ever been born on the face of the earth can escape punishment for sin. Sin will be punished. Now those who place their faith in Christ come under the blessing of His provision, but sin will be punished. He Himself bore our sins on the cross. My Lord was punished for my sin. Sin will be punished. Either you take hold of Christ by faith and He bears your punishment, or ultimately, you will spend eternity in hell. God's holiness requires sin to be punished. Third, there is no mercy in judgment. In verse 3, also, God is a God of mercy. He is a God of kindness, God of grace. But when God determines that today is the day of judgment, there will be no mercy found. There was no mercy for the Amalekites, no mercy for the oldest women, the most helpless infants. But my idol is an idol of love, not like your God of the Bible, wrath, vengeance. Well, the true God has presented Himself here in this chapter to dispel your idolatry. Put the idol away from you. 
God is a God of love, yes, but not just that. Every single Amalekite, regardless of sex, regardless of age, was to be wiped out. There's no mercy, as God commanded Saul. As I mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, those who have not believed in Christ, they will experience the fullness of God's wrath mixed in the cup of His anger, full strength, undiluted, without mercy mixed in. That will be the eternal lake of fire. The smoke of their torment goes up into the ages of the ages. No relief day and night. There is no mercy in judgment. Fourth, God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. We see that in verse 6. The Kenites, they're delivered. They're allowed to escape. Mercy is found for the righteous. In Genesis 18, recall Abraham appealing to God on the basis of his mercy, pleading for deliverance of Lot and his family as God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham knows Lot and my family, they're there. What does he say to God? You will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he delivered Lot, his wife, two daughters, drug them out of town. There is mercy. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Fifth, there is great temptation that comes on the heels of prosperity and great victory. We see this in verses 7 through 9. As Saul defeated the Amalekites, his enemies were crushed. Yet this turns out to be a crushing defeat for him. And we need to take this to heart. We can think likewise. Look how successful we are. We've done well. This must be the blessing from the Lord. God must be pleased. We fall into the same trap. Well, if you're rich and famous, God must be pleased with you. If you're poor and destitute and nobody knows you, that must be God's judgment. Don't fall into that trap. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe God is blessing you. But our riches are not necessarily an indication of our obedience before God. Are you obedient? Saul's defeat of the Amalekites did not cover the disobedience. He could wipe out the Amalekites without Saul. Somehow, in flourishing success, it seems okay to minimize our disobedience. Great temptation often comes on the heels of prosperity and great victory. Next, the godly are grieved by sin. We see in verse 11, Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Remember that King Saul had replaced the judge, Samuel. Samuel was the judge. Now Israel rejected Samuel. They rejected God, the God of Samuel. And Samuel is not delighted to see Saul's rejection even by God. He is distressed. He is grieving at the end of chapter 25. He's not delighted. The godly person does not delight in the sin of others. Seventh, fallen man is self-centered. We see that in verse 12. Saul takes the glory for himself. He builds a monument to himself, even though he knows he's been disobedient. Eighth, unrepentant sinners do not accept responsibility for their sin. We see that in verse 15. Saul points out the sins of the people. Again, he's claiming fidelity to God's command. We destroyed everything else under the ban, but they did this. It goes back to the garden. Genesis 3. God confronts Adam. What does Adam answer? The woman whom you gave. He blames God. Whom you gave to be with me. She gave from the tree. And I ate. Blame shifting is no escape for the consequences of your sin. Sinners cannot escape responsibility and accountability for their sin. Number nine, all disobedience to God is great sin. Yes, disobedience is a big deal. In the raising of our kids, what's the big deal, Dad? It's just some little thing. You're training your kids. Hopefully you have been trained that disobedience to God is great sin. Consider your thoughts. Yeah, it's disobedience. It wasn't major. Besides, it didn't hurt anyone else. I can justify my sin, right? Like Saul tried to do. It's only one king among the thousands of otherwise dead Amalekites. I only spared Agag, only the best of the animals. Give me some credit. There is no credit given to Saul for partial disobedience. God views partial disobedience as complete disobedience. 
God views partial obedience as complete disobedience. You might as well have been worshiping demons. Again, that's what idolatry actually is, demon worship. This partial obedience, God has uh, made equivalent to demon worship. We have a hard time with this today. We like to have our little sins, our respectable sins, our respectable disobedience, but we need to see what God sees, that all disobedience is, in fact, a great sin. Number 10, we must fear God, not man. Wasn't that Saul's problem? In verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. May that never be an excuse that comes off the lips of me or you. It was not a valid excuse for Saul. It's no more valid for me or you today. We must determine to simply do what God says, regardless of what the people want to do. Let them stand for their disobedience. You must do what God says. Is He God or is He not? Is He worthy of obedience? Does the world's zeitgeist offset God's clear commands? Everyone else is okay with it. They're doing it. They're even giving hearty approval to the sin. But God says to obey His Word. Our desire must be to fear God, not man. Eleventh, man is concerned with religious appearance, not an abiding walk with God. We see this in verse 30. The remorseful sinner still wants to be honored. There is no desire to honor God. We need to understand the difference between remorse and repentance, even in our own hearts, so we might guard against it. As the chapter ends, who's grieving? Is it disobedient Saul grieving over his sin? Or is it obedient Samuel, the godly man, realizing how serious the sin is and how awful its consequences may be? And then lastly, there is grief in the service of the Lord. We see in verse 35, chapter 15, ending with Samuel grieving over Saul. Even in faithful ministries, Samuel was faithful, but there is grief over unrepentant sinners. The Apostle Paul will later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, towards the end of verse 29, who is led into sin without my intense concern? Does it not break your heart when you see a fellow believer fall into or living in sin? Do you grieve over that? You should. If you grieve over a fellow believer in sin, you're likely grieving over your own sin. But that's where it starts. A right understanding of your own sinful hearts. But if you do not grieve over your own sin... Maybe 1 John 1, verse 8 is true of you. If you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. Today is the day of salvation. Please do not wait until you find yourself in the lake of fire to mourn over your sin. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. There is a bit of hope that we're left with. There is a time to grieve over unrepentant sinners, but there's also a point in time where you must once again put your shoulder into the plow and carry on with the faithful work of the Lord as Samuel is even called here in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Don't cry over spilled milk, if you will. I've rejected him. Stop grieving. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. A good king is on his way. God has already chosen him. He's already rejected Samuel, Saul, already rejected, rejected Saul, and he's chosen David. The blessing has been transferred over to David, if you will, but it's going to take years before David himself actually becomes king. Even David... The young shepherd boy has some lessons to learn in the coming years. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Old Testament and the richness of it that clearly reveals your holiness and yet your loving kindness to Israel. Father, help us to take to heart these lessons today, even from the opening theme through our study in 1 Samuel 15. Love for you 
results in obedience. And disobedience is setting ourselves up as God, as knowing better than you, Lord. Father, I pray that if any one of us here this morning are living with such deluded thinkings in the grandiosity of our own imaginations, that you would convict us of sin. Cause us to be so repulsed by the sin that we're trying to hide. Cause us to walk in transparent confession with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we might walk before you in holiness. Father, you are God. You know all things. You are sovereign over history. And we cannot hide our sin from you. Help us to recognize the great offense to you that our sin is, especially if we claim Christ and yet walk in sin. Convict us even this morning, I pray. Help us, Father, as a local body to be careful to honor you, to give you the glory that it might start with a love for you that is fleshed out in obedience. Lord, help us to be obedient to all your word, to all that you have written. Find us faithful servants when you send your son for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>